This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. An important book, an important topic. Titled, Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old. How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. And our author is financial planner and, I'll call him a wizard, Roger Remick. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. This is a complicated topic, complicated subject. What was the inspiration behind this, and who is your target audience? The inspiration has been that I've worked typically with four to 500 CPAs every year doing their continuing education and realize their frustration in that they get asked so many questions related to Social Security or Medicare or long-term care, how does the retirement plan work, et cetera, and they just don't have the expertise their clients expect. So what I've tried to do over the years in seminars and speeches is help them develop enough expertise. Their clients. You talk about retirement landmines. What is the number one thing that, that shows up when you're dealing with this topic? People who are trying to accumulate enough finances to retire. Well, the number one is retiring too early when they're not prepared, not being retirement ready. And how do you get retirement ready? Uh, there are some people like me, I am one of those creatives, I have had a rather uh, colorful retirement, uh, not retirement, but a colorful history. Uh, being in the talent business, it's feast and famine. One year you're doing well, the next year you're drawing from savings and there's very little left. Is there a way to level that out that you have seen that would help well, people like me? I uh, would say that the probably the hardest thing for people to understand is they've been taught by investment houses, mutual fund families, insurance companies, et cetera, to think in terms of how high do I need to pile the assets. Right. The problem is that approaches even 10 or 15-year money in a safe bond or CD account is a very small fraction of what you could have made 20 years ago. So people like my own father who retired 20 years ago. 20 years ago, if you had 200000 you could make 15000 a year in income and take no risk. Right. Today, that same 200000 would probably get you three or 4000 in income. Ouch. So they don't have the cash flow. So a major premise in my book is that everything should be viewed in terms of cash flows. Viewing things in terms of cash flows is the advantage, too, that it makes it easier to incorporate Social Security planning into the process. If you're thinking in terms of assets, Social Security has no asset value, but Social Security has tremendous cash flow value because it's, it's a virtually guaranteed source of income for as many as 30 or 35 or even 40 years in some cases. there It's predictable. It, it grows at the rate of inflation. Therefore, while people who are not yet on Social Security may discount the value of Social Security, I know virtually no one who is already retired who does not take great security from knowing they're going to get their Social Security check and on exactly what day of the month. Mm-hmm. I know people in that category. I have uh, some younger relatives who are looking towards real estate as an investment long-term with rental properties and those type of assets. What is your view of of that particular approach? Well, real estate does have have a cash flow benefit. The 
One of the major problems, of course, is we can see tremendous changes in the demographics. For example, right now, rental property is becoming a a very good asset to have again. Uh, and it was 30 years ago. But during the interim, there was a time frame when everybody was being made able to buy their own, and therefore there were fewer renters and rental rates with that. So it is a, it is a good source of retirement cash flow. It is not necessarily a reliable or predictable source of retirement cash flow. Also, the tax laws have uh, ebbed and flowed with that particular approach to retirement as well. That is true. The, the, the most lenient was during the Reagan presidency. Then the rules tightened a good bit, and we've had a little bit of loosening of the rules on rental income in recent years. But starting January 1st, 2001, Rental income is is an income subject to Obamacare taxes. Oh, ouch! I, I would say ouch. I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but it sounds like an ouch to me. Is it an it ouch? It is an ouch for <laughs> for a lot of people. Right. You have had a, a, a history of uh, involvement in finances, financial uh, the financial areas, and in in uh, teaching and. Uh, schooling others in the nuances. How long have you done so? I got a Ph.D. in the middle 70s uh, from Michigan State University and have either taught or consulted, and sometimes both, for the last 40 years. Incredible. Of those 40 years, do you feel like today is the most exciting opportunities, or have we missed a few of them? Actually, I think, Jay, that today is, in one sense, the most exciting opportunities, because it is the time in my lifetime that people have needed the most help. Hmm. The, the sources of retirement cash flow have changed. As I said earlier, you you can't get rates of returns for nice, safe CDs, money market accounts, government bonds, etc. Matter of fact, government bonds with any term on them can be one of the more risky assets these days. But we have new types of investments. We have new ways of getting revenue, including even things like reverse mortgages. Mm Mm-hmm. Reverse mortgages, when they first came out, were a terrible deal. Yes, they they were a way of getting cash flow in retirement, but the fees were too high, the interest rates were too high, etc. But over time, that's changed. And over time, interest rates have gone down, fees have become more competitive, and in certain cases, a reverse mortgage is a viable option. The federal government has now defined who can take a reverse mortgage, what the tax rules are, etc. So that's an example of something that was not a viable source, in my opinion, 10 years ago. That's a very viable possibility. Uh, we have what's called in history a nuclear family, which was a husband, wife, and a couple of kids. If you were talking to a 30-year-old husband and his wife and children, what would be the advice strategy you would give them that they can grow their present to a bigger future. Well, the the one of the most important things that young people need to do is to begin to utilize tax qualified savings along the way. One of the great things that young people have available that we didn't have available 40 years ago is that they can contribute to an employer 401k in most cases. And in most cases, there's free money available to them mm-hmm. in the form of an employer match. And you would be amazed, Jay, at the percentage of young people who don't take the free money. That's true. <laughs> I took some of that free money when I was in corporate 
and uh, somehow it's gotten lost by the company that acquired the company that acquired the company. So I'm having to chase that down. It wasn't a huge amount of, of funds, but it is still something that's been a challenge to me. If you were to uh, recap your book and advise potential readers on its content, how would you do so? Well, I'd say that you'd use retirement cash flow oriented. That's the basic underlying theme is how do you have enough cash flow in retirement to meet your cash outflow in retirement? Some people call that uh, paycheck mentality, where does the money coming in this month exceed the money going out? That's a great overall framework. But my, what my book does is address how the Social Security decisions relate to that, how the Medicare decisions relate to that, how providing for long-term care relates to that. Mm-hmm. And I just can't emphasize that enough. Just in the last six months, I've had a number of families, a number of clients, where an elder member went into had to go into a facility because family could no longer care for them, even if family is right there, and costs run anywhere from six thousand a month all the way up to twelve thousand a month. Incredible. That'll uh, lower your estate value very quickly if you're having to tap into your funds. Yeah, it. What happens is people provide assets that they think are going to pay for their retirement and then the sad case is that human frailty results in a large part of those assets having to be drawn down in order to pay for mom or dad's or husband or wife's long-term care. Uh, we have a family member that just passed away. We were in uh, involved in the care of that individual. And fortunately, we were able to to handle all of the care up until the final day. So it uh, was a blessing to us not to have to draw on our resources for long-term care. But that possibility could happen to either myself or to my wife. So that's something that we need to be aware of. Yeah, the, the irony here, Jay, is that that a couple reaching retirement age of 65, now there is a 50% chance one of them is going to reach 95-plus. And what happens so often is that late 80s, early 90s especially, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, people lose their ability to function cognitively. Right. I have a meeting tomorrow with a lady who's just turned 90, and I've been warned by people who I have known for years who have been in more recent contact with her than I have, is she doesn't remember you. She mm. doesn't remember anybody. She can't remember anything that that happened 15 minutes ago. And it's sad. It, this was a lady that was a brilliant, fit lady all those years, but time catches up with all of us. It's true. I have a friend in my acquaintance and uh, was a close friend at one time. I haven't seen her in a while, but brilliant musician and uh, classically trained of the highest caliber. Now in her 80s, she has forgotten how to play the piano, and she was uh, uh, just an, a spectacular musician, uh, well known for her style and for her verve and for her ability to perform. Now she no longer can can do so at the piano bench. So this is a challenging book, has some challenging topics in it. The title again is Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old, How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. Our author, Roger Remick. Roger, where can we get copies of your book? The books are available on Amazon. Uh, they are also available through the publisher, which is iUniverse. Uh, and they are available through 
my website, which is retirementcashflow.com. Thank you, sir, for joining me. And for those of you who are listening, let me spell out Roger's last name. It's Roger Remick, spelled R-O-E-M-M-I-C-H. So you can do a search online, find Roger, find out about his retirement strategies, and grow your wealth by following his advice. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today tackles a very complex and difficult subject, but in a new approach. It's titled, New Hope for Schools, Findings of a Teacher Turned Detective. Our author, Dr. Susan Farr-Gabriel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Jay, for having me. This is, a again, a complicated subject. Uh, on one side, you have individuals that feel throwing money at the problem will solve issues. On the other side, you feel like charter schools and other alternative solutions might improve the education standards. You're in Los Angeles. Why did you decide to write this book? What was the inspiration behind it? Well, I taught in Los Angeles City Schools for 20 years, and towards the end of my career, I walked into the teacher's workroom, and I saw a bulletin board, I saw a poster on a bulletin board that said, Warning Teacher Burnout. And there were, there was an electrical outlet with a whole bunch of extension cords, and I said, hmm, gee, that's interesting. I think I'll go back to school when I retire and sort it all out. So that was kind, and then I just started thinking about it, and then I then I finished and went back to school. Did you yourself uh, experience any of the burnout uh, scenarios that are mentioned quite frequently in the teaching and education system? Oh yes, yes. I I have to say that of my twenty years, the first five were probably just getting to know how to teach because it takes a while to really really get to know how to teach and after about five years then my classrooms were humming and I was very satisfied but then I started realizing that we had constant new programs being introduced constantly uh, all the time and that prevented me from really giving all my attention to my students so I, uh, I, I, in my, and when I was back at UCLA, uh, I drew a chart and I called it, uh, I, I called it um, systemic decline. And my formula was nineteen plus one equals eighteen, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means. If your school quality is 19 and you add a reform effort, it's going to, school quality is going to go down. Wow. And that's really quite well known in the literature. So clearly we needed a new theory about how schools work. Do you think that administrators and some of those in leadership, in order to justify their existence, keep adding these other tweaks and uh, formations in the school system, the education system, in order to justify why they should be there? Well, I really think that everybody wants schools to succeed. 
And what happens is everybody is trying to give their input. And so what happens is it ends up in the teacher uh, in the teacher's hands because the teacher is the one in front of the students. And so everybody's really kind of trying to do their best. And so I think that's really what happens. In your research and putting together the contents of New Hope for Schools, what is your proposed program exactly? How does it work? Well, I really took a journey in, in this book. Part one was my experience and my discovery that 18 plus 1 equals 17, and also my other discovery that we all of school decision makers are like they're on the Tower of Babel. Everybody's speaking a different language. So I went back to school and I wrote a couple. I got very excited about what became the round table and what became the thermostat guide. And I got very excited about them, and I wrote two journal articles. And then 10 years later, (laughs) I decided this has to be a book for everybody. And so I translated my formula to, I I tried to write it in a very reader-friendly way. And my formula turned out to be, well, first of all, the roundtable is such an exciting new practice. It is a 30-minute activity, and it's you introduce it in classrooms. We did, we've done it for 15 years in fourth-grade classrooms and other classrooms, too. We've done it for 14 years in my educational conferences, and it's an exciting new practice. It's 30 minutes long, five minutes of kind of uh, re- readings and review, and 25 minutes of participant comments, student comments, time distributed equally among all 30 students so that every child gets a chance to give his view on the topic. And since there are 40 weeks in a semester, every child gets a chance to be roundtable leader during the year. And uh, because the, the, the activity is cued by a one-page script. Is it focused on one? Is it math-related? Is it conversation-related? Is it uh, topical in any way? Well, actually, it's really, it's kind of a curriculum delivery system. It's not a curriculum. So it, it's in fourth-grade classrooms, and social, the teacher might suggest a social studies topic, a science topic. It might be a piece of literature that the students have read. And uh, in my a- academic conference, that, as a matter of fact, uh, what our topic, we do it five days a week every morning before the before the day. And our topic on the first day is... What situations did you leave behind to come here? And what could happen here that would add value to your work back home? Because it's an international conference. And then on the second day, our topic is, what did you learn yesterday that was important for you? How was it important? So what it does is it suggests a topic, but it allows 30 viewpoints to be heard uh, equally. And so uh, we've come up with a sentence when we travel faster than the speed of sound, you break the sound barrier. Mm-hmm. When, we hear, when we hear 30 viewpoints in 30 minutes, we break the communication barrier. I think that's a great idea. And that would work, actually, transfer into business and other areas of community conversation. Right. And actually, we have one going monthly, a steady one in Los Angeles with the American Society for Training and Development and the International Society for Performance Improvement. We've been doing it monthly now. So it's it's really exciting. How are your results? How have they proven to be effective? Well, what uh, I think uh, student comments are wonderful. And, and some of the uh, academics and the practitioners and the professionals, their comments are wonderful, too. Some of them say, oh, I didn't, uh, some of the fourth grade students' comments are, gee, I didn't realize how much I could learn and uh Gee, when we first started the roundtable, students were, were kind of misbehaving, and now everybody's quiet and listening. And when I read this to my writing group, one of my uh, one of the people in there is kind of uh, doubting Thomas, and he said, Sue, kids don't listen. And I said, they do listen to each other. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. don't like to listen to the teacher all the time. So it's really wonderful when you can hear 30 authentic viewpoints in 30 minutes and it's it's just transformative so and you're taking the teacher into a a position of being a a facilitator 
in the conversation. Right. And as a matter of fact, the teacher can actually step aside and let the kids run the roundtables. And it's also valuable. The reason why my my background, my, my research was in systemic change and systemic renewal. In other words, the whole system. And uh, so it's for classrooms, faculty meetings, PTA meetings, district level meetings, government meetings, workplaces. It's just a little 30-minute activity that can can really enhance a community. Who's your target audience with this book? Well, my target audience uh, is all school decision makers. And so, uh, because every, that's what I've learned is that decisions are made in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. that affect my Los Angeles classroom and they don't match. And so we have to all start speaking the same language. And so it's for all school decision all school decision makers. So that's prong one of my three-pronged solution. (laughs) Do you feel a passion for enhancing, obviously, education, but the local autonomy of the school districts and the educators? Well, that's what's so interesting. When I studied systemic change, there are levels of authority. The parent knows best how the the child's idiosyncrasies. So the parent has the authority for that. The teacher knows best what the child needs in the classroom and the subject matter. The principal knows best all the different functions of the school. The superintendent has a wider view, so we just have to make the decisions appropriate for each level. I heard somebody say at a leadership conference I was at, um, uh, the speaker said, when authority and responsibility are in two different seats, there is chaos. So we just need appropriate authority at each level. What are your thoughts? It makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. What about, uh, what about your uh, concepts or your feelings toward, say, charter schools, uh, private schools, homeschooling? Are those effective, and are they working well because of something unique to those environments? You know, uh, I, I, my experience in public education is that We've outgrown the old model, and we need a fresh new model. And uh, charter schools and private schools and homeschooling, these are just local people trying to do their best. But I am absolutely committed to public education, because if we don't have a system of public education, you know, we're, we're not going to really go forth as a society. So that everyone has his own expertise. And my interest is public education. It's a great area, one that needs a lot of support, a lot of uh, rebuilding, in my opinion. Right. There are some concerns by some who are immersed in the public school system that yes. teachers are not judged on the merit of their skills sometimes, but only on tenure. Is that anything that you've addressed in your book? You know, I have addressed uh, tenure a little bit, and again, my my vision is from the classroom and also from the ivory tower because right. my journey took me from the classroom all the way up to the ivory tower of systemic school change and then back again to the front lines with my three-pronged solution. And tenure at the school level is a wonderful thing because it builds a community of teachers. I agree. But however, it also has resulted in, if it's not designed correctly, it results in a host of teachers sitting in a district office collecting salaries because they've been pulled out of the classroom and they can't be fired. So I think I I really am not an expert in that. I've given my opinion in the book uh, that tenure is, but I also point out that there's a great difference between teachers that are in the classroom and uh, teachers that are, have non-classroom positions. Teachers in the classroom really have to have all of our support. And teachers that have non-classroom positions, um, well, one of the discoveries I made is hyper-bureaucracy. In other words, uh, the California Code of Education says that there shall be eight administrative positions to 100 teaching positions. Mm. And in 1980... Uh, there was a district official, uh, uh, actually a, um, a union official, who discovered that there were 25 positions to 100. 
And by that, those are like administrators, coordinators, counselors, uh, personnel. And some of this, those aren't even counted at, at, when we do our calculations. So we need to get, uh, and so that it, by his calculations, there are 17 salaries out of 100 that are illegitimate. And all of those teachers, all of the non-teaching teachers, of course, Nobody becomes a teacher to become a bad teacher. True. And educators are missionaries. And so they keep trying to improve. That's my view. And, uh, but if you're, if there are, the more administrators there are out of the classroom that are trying to tell me, the teacher, how to teach, it prevents me from interacting with my students appropriately. I'm sure you have some horror stories. Also, from being a teacher, there's a rise in violence and disruption. How have you addressed that in the past, and what is your recommendation to the uh, teaching community today? Well, uh, when I, I stopped teaching, actually in 1988, because I had an opportunity to go, to go back to school, to USC and UCLA, and then I went to Saybrook Graduate School, where I studied systemic change. And I remember uh, one day I was driving home from UCLA and I heard on the news that there were two shooting deaths in Los Angeles high schools. And uh, it's true. We have police on campus now. I mean, there has been a tremendous decline. And I, I look at Maslow's chart. Well, schools used to. Uh, their goals were achievement, and now many, many schools today they're in the survival mode. Right. So, uh, and so, uh, but we can't. Transformation can't come from without; it has to come from within. So, I'm offering a seed, <laughs> a seed that actually that I discovered in a wonderful, wonderful reading group, and I've just enhanced it to to be uh, applied to schools. Proactive is much better than reactive. And your book covers a lot of great material. Uh, It is an extensive read if you are going to sit down and study it, but there are reference points that a reader can go to and highlight those particular aspects of education and learn from them. I'm sure there were some challenges in completing this of 568 pages, but it is a great read for anyone in the education system or anyone who cares about education of their students and their community. The title, New Hope for Schools, Findings of a Teacher Turned Detective. Our author and guest, Dr. Susan Farr-Gabriel. Dr. Gabriel, share with my listeners how they can get a copy of this important book. Well, they could get them... They can find them Barnes and Noble, iUniverse, Amazon. They can find them on my website, www.gems learning, G-E-M-S, Gabriel Educational Materials and Systems Learning.net. Fabulous. And are you planning to continue your your efforts, your your passion, your crusade to reform schools by perhaps writing a follow-up book? I'm going to, absolutely, I'm not sure about the follow-up book. We'll see how that outflows, but I will absolutely continue with this work. And I just want to mention that the appendices in my book are user-ready guides for roundtables. So a reader, a teacher, a superintendent, a principal, all they have to do is start there while they're reading the book. The book is really, it's thorough, but it's very user-friendly. Dr. Gabriel, thank you for sharing your background story and your history into the writing of this particularly important book. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. 
Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Precarious Journey into Magic. And the author is Jenna Lindsay, and Jenna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Um, it indeed will be a magical discussion in the way you write, in the pictures that you form in our minds by reading your words. Uh, have you ever wanted to be part of a fairy tale? That's the question we'll ask everyone because uh, this is a very special fairy tale. It's, I'd have to say it's more real than a fairy tale. I mean, that's the way it all happened in your mind, right? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's a unique mystery. It's magical. It deals with uh, some key central characters as well as secondary characters. And it deals with Ellswith, who will get to know a fairy. And uh, her very close friend, Emerson. But first of all, before we get into all those details and the plot and uh, what makes these characters so special... Tell us about yourself, Jenna, and uh, how this book came about. I love books, and it's not—it's completely natural, uh, not at all unexpected that I would be a writer. Uh, I used to frequent a secondhand bookstore. I, secondhand bookstores have a magic beyond libraries, and uh, the books have been treasured and rescued and to be read and shared again. And the secondhand bookstore uh, was knocked down for road improvements, and I was devastated. And I decided to uh, keep the, the bookstore alive. In this novel, A Precarious Journey into Magic, I wanted to share the experience of being in that bookstore and and how magical it was to me to be surrounded by books, and I wanted to share how I feel about books. And uh, I I feel that um, when when you're reading, you are in another time and place and it's the most unique way of traveling and uh, I I just wanted to share that with people because sometimes when I'm talking I probably don't seem to make sense because my mind is elsewhere I've just read a novel and and uh, instead of watching a television program or a movie I've I've been for myself in another world in another place and time and and uh, I wanted to share that so where does your book take place where would the story take place well, the story takes place present-day Earth in the bookstore, which I, I recreated within a, a beautiful old uh, Victorian-style house. And uh, it takes place across centuries in medieval Earth uh, and within the pages of several books. And I must clarify that Ellsworth, known as Ellsworth of Linaday, is not a fairy, but she is a, a woman who has fairy blood in her. So one of one of her ancestors was a fairy, and um, Emerson Patterson, her the great love of her life, and um, uh, she is his great love. Um, he too, he doesn't know it, but he also had an ancestor who uh, was has was a fairy, and so they are called fairies fine. And uh, if you're fine, it means that um, 
one of your ancestors was romanced by a fairy, which I thought was very cool. <laughs> if you're a fairy fair, then you're, of course, the fairy that, with the wings and, you know, flitting around, having apparently having a very good time. <laughs> I love this line in the prologue that sets up this uh, magical tale. Uh, again, you know, we're in the bookstore, and Emerson's there, and, and uh, he begins talking with Ellsworth. And you say this uh, about Ellsworth. She lived between the pages of an old book. <laughs> that, that just jumped out at me. Uh, just, you know, the, the, that's what's so amazing about books like you were just talking about because they take us so many places. Yes, I, uh, hence the question, have you ever wished you could be part of a fairy tale? And I think very many of us think that going traveling into the past, we'd be so much happier. Um, being in a fairy tale, wouldn't that be romantic? And we uh, forget that it's also very frightening. There, there aren't just wonderful fairies flitting around and all good happiness, you know, waiting for you. There's, there's a lot of evil and darkness. And I had to deal with three villains in this story, and they would crop up at unexpected moments. And, and I would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, um, who are you and, and where did you come from? I was expecting this one over here. And uh, it was really caught me off guard sometimes. I, I just would write, and unlike my previous uh, books where I would write whenever I pass my study and I think, oh, you know, I think I hear this particular or see this particular scene. Uh, I would write every day with uh, Ellsworth and Emerson and be with them and the secondary characters. There's five of them and they're all so wonderful and unique. Um, and it was such a personal story. It is such a personal story. It's my favorite book that I've written so far. And but it was when it got really tiring. It also got very scary sometimes because I'd I'd be in my study and I'd I'd complete a scene with Ellsworth and Emerson or Freddie Berrywood and then suddenly, oh my gosh, the next scene is with Nickabox, who's a minor sorcerer compared to the major uh, sorcerer Miria, who is so pernicious. I I just I really didn't like being with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be careful who you hang out with. You do, you do. The, the nice thing is that, you know, I, I know how it ends, but I'm not telling. <laughs> yes, you do know how it ends. Well, tell us about Avery Kind. Well, Avery Kind is the uh, proprietor of the bookstore where most of the novel takes place within a book, in the bookstore, within the bookstore itself. And he's really essential throughout the entire story because he understands the importance of books and he believes in the magic of books and he believes in love and magic and he he's uh he's a wistful man he's he's uh and and his bookstore is uh, a sanctuary ultimately for the two central characters Ellsworth and Emerson um and it's Avery's um uh, he's steadfast and it's his steadfast nature and his compassion and his um, you know protection of the books and the bookstore are really essential to for the story to go forward and for the two central characters Ellsworth and Emerson to uh, um, go on their journey and and also Avery and his friend Freddie Berrywood, they're very important to uh, solving, helping to solve the mystery. And I, I didn't really start out to write a mystery. Uh, I found it really challenging. But ultimately, you, this is a fantasy that is a mystery. Uh, it's also a love story. But I found that the mystery was very compelling 
and and really challenging. And I'm I'm really grateful that I had very smart characters like Avery and Freddie and and Albert and Mrs. Foyle and Mr. Preen, uh, but especially Avery and Freddie. They they were so smart. I thought I thought, oh my gosh, this is how I what if I've interpreted the poem wrong? And they they'd come up with suggestions and <laughs> I'd say, oh oh, of course that's what it means. Oh well, I'm glad one of us knows. Characters do seem to talk, don't they? They just kind of start talking and you start writing. I do. I do. And, and I'll, I'll say to my husband, I'll say, quick, write this down. <laughs> <laughs> I've already shut my computer off. Quick, quick, write, take these notes so I don't, so I don't lose it. And then he'll grab right. his notepad and jot down some notes and then I'll work with them the next day. Um, there were a lot of riddles. Several, there are several riddles in the story, and they weren't difficult to write. But then I'd look at them and I'd think, "Well, how am I going to solve this riddle? What does it mean?" And it would take me a, a, a little while to figure it out. I found it ultimately really satisfying and, and really fascinating. What would you say? How would you describe the theme of your book? Well, the theme of my book. I think that, um, as I said earlier, that the, the, the story touches on a subject that people rarely discuss, and that's the desire for a happy ever after. And we, we don't like to talk about it, and we don't like to acknowledge it as more than just a, a fantasy. We just tend to be dismissive of fantasy, and we forget how important it is. And... Um, we we forget that within fantasy there's there's darkness and we don't want to acknowledge the possibility of loss or defeat. But even more than that, I think that being dismissive of fantasy as we become more dependent on technology, we forget how important stories are, whether they're fantasies, fictions, non-fictions, whatever it is, whatever format you're reading, uh, the, the the books themselves, the stories, um, they provide possibilities that science and technology can't provide. And, and in any format, the books and the stories that they tell, are, they're part of our future. We have to keep them, keep them safe. That's, that's an important thing that Avery Kind provides. He provides a sanctuary, not just for Ellsworth and Emerson, but for these wonderful books in his secondhand bookstore. And, and um, I, you know, to, to, I fortunately was not there. I just happened to, my husband drove me by one day and I said, oh, let's stop at my favorite secondhand bookstore. And I'm looking over my shoulder now as we continue to drive by and it's gone and the roadway's wider. And I, I just thought that's terribly sad. And I, that, that, you know, yeah, we need roadways, but we, we need the bookstores. We need the bookstores and the libraries. And uh, we need to, to keep our books somewhere in our home and, and uh, you know, available on whatever electronic format is, makes us feel good. But uh, we need those stories. There's something about walking into a room and seeing a uh, bookshelf or shelves filled with books. It kind of draws itself, draws us to those books, and we start looking at titles, and we pull out one or two, and we leaf through them. It's just, I don't know, that, I think that's just part of the human, the human condition. I think you're right. I know that in every room in my house, there's a small group of books, a setting for books. And then uh, in one room, I have what I call my library. And it's a six shelf uh, just for my personal collection of books. Most of them are secondhand, favorite books, books that inspired me. Um, and uh, it just makes me feel good every time I walk into that room. And as you said, I see the titles and I can run my fingers along the titles, pull out a favorite book, read a few lines, and I get caught up in the story right away. Right. Well, you've mentioned about this bookstore being a necessary sanctuary for the two main characters. But at, at the same time, 
it's a setting for this battle between good and evil. Yes, it does become very much so part of that setting. Um, kind of a launch point at a couple of places later on in the story where uh, Ellsworth is in possession of a book called uh, All Fairies Fine. And from that book, she and Emerson can go essentially back in time to a magical place called Lina Day and uh, confront uh, the sorcerer and um, it it gets really tense. I found it hard to put the book down when I was reading it. It was very odd for me to be reading what a I thought I wrote this. I know what's going to happen. I know how it's going to end. Why am I? Why am I? You know, still turning the page and reading. And um, uh, but some of the wonderful magic that takes place occurs actually in the bookstore late at night, and uh, it's kind of spooky and it's really beautiful at the same time. So uh, it was uh, really, I really enjoyed it. It was a wonderful experience for me to write this book. We've enjoyed talking to you, Jenna. I know everyone listening uh, can is caught up in just this magic, as Jenna has put it so well. The magic of books and her new her book titled "A Precarious Journey into Magic." So there is that edge to it. Obviously, this battle between good and evil. Jenna, tell yeah. us the best way to get your book. Well, you can get it from iUniverse, of course. You can go to my website, authorjennalindsay.com, and there's a link provided on the site that will take you directly to uh, ordering my book from Amazon. You can order it from uh, Amazon.com or .ca. Um, Barnes & Noble in the States and Chapters Indigo in Canada, you can just go in and say, I'd like to order Jenna Lindsay's fourth novel, A Precarious Journey into Magic, and they'll bring it up on screen and place the order for you. And um, uh, you can also order it electronically. Thank you so much, Jenna, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.